Hi, welcome to another enlightening episode of Human Insights Unlocked. I'm your host Ishita and today we have a special episode lined up for you as we sit down with Daniel Ensign, a market researcher with over 15 years of experience who has climbed the ranks from being a secondary researcher to vice president of research solutions at Toluna. In this podcast, we'll not only gain some valuable insights in the world of market research, but also we'll talk about leadership and driving the team. Before we begin, I want to apologize in advance. You will hear some disturbance for the first three minutes of the podcast, but right after that, we're all good. Hope you get some insightful learning. Hello, Dan, and welcome to the Human Insights Podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Shita. I'm well, thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and share your journey in the world of market research? Sure. So my name is Dan Anson. Um, I work for Toluna. I've been at Toluna for um, just over 10 years. Prior to Toluna, I worked at Ipsos for about three years. Um, before that, I worked at another two other market research companies. But since I've been to Toluna, um, I've seen a lot of lot of change. Uh, when I first started, we we weren't really a research company. We offered uh, sample, we provided panel basically, and now we've evolved into kind of like a full service. Um, we we offer full service now. So um, I was only the second researcher on staff, and we now have you know dozens more. So um, you know my journey has been very interesting to say the least. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, let's delve deeper into your fascinating journey. Uh, so, so far at Tuluna, you seem to have various roles and responsibilities. Uh, so, from start as a secondary researcher to now being a vice president, uh, could you share how your understanding of market research has evolved over the years? Sure. So, um, when I first started in market research, I was more focused on the results. So, for example, you know, concept B is the winner or uh, the biggest purchase drivers for the brand are X and Y. But now I try to focus more on the implications of the results, so the insights. So what do the results mean? Um, What's the next step? There's also more urgency for data now than there was when I started, you know, about 15 years ago. Um, Back then, a study would launch and the client wouldn't have access to the data for, for weeks. Um, waiting that long is no longer viable for clients. And a lot of companies have developed, including Toluna, a lot of companies have developed online data viewing tools that allow clients to access their data as it's collected. So reporting has also been expedited because of that. Or in some cases, it's not even required since clients can now pull their own data. So it's inspiring to see the overall progression that you've made. So now let's turn our attention to the high-value offer initiatives that have played a crucial role in shaping Toluna's uh, standing in the marketplace. So you've been involved in driving market research initiatives and enhancing its credibility. So what were some high-value offer initiatives that you've led and how would you say that they've strengthened uh, Toluna's market position? Uh, And also, if you, for our audience, if you could just explain uh, what high-value offers means. Sure. So a high value offer HVO, as, as Luna defines it, it's a way for us to showcase our platform and our data quality to clients who've not run projects with us recently or prospective clients who 
might not even know about us. Um, the benefit for them is that there's no financial commitment. They're able to submit one or two questions to add on to our existing HVO questionnaire templates. Um, it's almost like an omnibus in the sense that the questions are sourced from different uh, clients, but we arrange them in a logical sequence. So it's, it's a good way for us to get our foot in the door with clients. And it's a great, you know, it, it also helps us stay relevant and top of mind with them. And, you know, we, we offer the HVO on topics that we've seen widespread interest in. So some of the topics have been um, Generation Z. So a lot of clients are interested in this in this group. You know, what they're, they're the next big group that people can can capitalize on. Um, inflation, obviously, everybody's impacted by inflation. Um, and the metaverse was another big one that, that we did uh, that generate a lot of interest. So th those are just some of the examples. All right. How would you say that we have strengthened uh, Toluna's position in the marketplace? I think it's just opened us up to a, a wider array of clients um, who, who maybe didn't know about us or they, they've now seen how quickly we can collect results. They've seen the quality of our results. So hopefully, you know, I, I don't know for a fact, but I, I think it's led to, to additional business for us. Uh, can you also tell us in your experience, what are the key components of a successful research strategy and uh, how it helps in achieving business goals? Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing is you want to determine what you're trying to solve for. So what are the objectives of the research? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, once that's determined, you can move on to the second step, which is identifying the audience. So who do you want to interview? Um, what characteristics should the respondents possess? Do you want to talk to all men? Do you want to talk to all women? Should it be a general population sample? So on and so forth. Um, once you have that ironed out, you want to pick the proper methodology. So is it going to be a concept test? Is it going to be a max diff study? Is it going to be a pricing sensitivity study? So on and so forth. So we need to come up with the best approach for generating the desired outcomes. Um, once that's in place, we then want to pick the sample size. Uh, the sample size is likely going to be dictated by a couple different things. So first the audience. So how, how many people we can actually reach. Um, and also the methodology. So different methodologies require different minimum base sizes. So we take all of these things into account and then we would come up with uh, a recommended sample size. Um, and then the last step would be to, you know, we, we pull it all together and then we would, we would set a realistic timeline um, that has measurable milestones. So there's no ambiguities between us and the clients. The client understands when they're getting the questionnaire, when they're getting the data, when they're getting the final report, et cetera. That you have achieved the business goals. Like, what are the key ROI metrics that you uh, measured uh, after the entire strategy is being put in place? Typically, it's measured in repeat business. So we know that we're successful if the client comes back to us and asks us to, you know, uh, run another study with them or purchase a, a set of studies from us. Sure. Uh, so, like you said, that uh, clients' expectations are usually already set, but has there been any instance where you diplomatically had to manage the client expectations, which weren't really uh, matched the project requirement at the start? And if there was any misalignment uh, that uh, in the project feasibility, and is there any instance about it? No, that's never happened. Um, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's definitely happened. Um, 
clients don't always have the best understanding of costs and timing, um, how long it takes things to, to, to get to get things done, what it's going to cost. Uh, and because of that, they sometimes have expectations that are impossible to meet given the budget and the timeline. So, um, for example, I worked on one study. It was it was a concept test. I think we had we had at least 100 concepts, maybe possibly more. Um, and we had an overall quota on different demographics for the overall study. Um, but the client thought that the quota was going to be balanced across each of the 100 concepts. So in, in a perfect world, you know, we, we would be able to do that. Um, but in order to do that, the field time would have taken so much longer than we had, and the cost would have been through the roof. So um, we explained our rationale to the client. He understood where we were coming from, in full results, despite the confusion. Quite easy. Uh, that, that, as much as it's a misalignment, it's just as smooth uh, as it could be. So there was no firefighting. Uh... Not really. I mean, you know, there, there were certainly, we, we weren't seeing eye to eye on the initial terms of the study, but once the data came in and we explained everything, the client understood and, you know, was able to run with the data. Also, uh, from my experience to uh, basically in the research space, whatever that I've been, uh, has there been an instance where <clears throat> the expectation of the research did not align with client's expectation of the research. Uh, so as much as uh, the data said against uh, the case, but they still wanted to go ahead uh, with their uh, progress. Uh, there, so I'm not sure if any cases where the data has invalidated a hypothesis and the client has still moved forward nonetheless. Um, I, I do remember cases where the client came in and expected the outcome to be one way and it was completely different. Um, but it, in this one case where I'm thinking it, it was actually a good thing for the client um, because they were they thought they had to come up with different marketing strategies for different audiences. And it turned out we conducted a study among the different audiences and it turned out they were they were kind of the same. So it was it was a good finding for the client in that they were able to use one marketing plan to target everybody rather than coming up with different ones. That's a, that offers a unique perspective. Um, yeah. So ensuring data accuracy is super important in the market research. So how can one deal with unusual data and make sure the results are reliable? So also has there been any instance in your journey where focusing on data accuracy has led to significant uh, changes in the outcomes? I, I would say the first step is a logic or, you know, a, a sanity check. Um, I once had a manager who called it the, the sniff test. So if the data seems fishy, you know, if, if something seems illogical or counterintuitive, we would want to investigate it further. So my initial reaction would be to ask the client why he or she thinks the data is flawed. Um, it's possible the client's comparing the data to uh, another study that had a different audience or utilized a different methodology or was sourced from a different panel or, you know, was just different in some way. So we want to be sure that any comparisons that are made are truly apples to apples, excuse me, apples to apples. Um, we also want to apply, you know, basic common sense check. So um, I remember working on a study about wine. And one of the local wineries was generating higher awareness in purchase relative to national brands. So it just, it, it wasn't possible. The data didn't make sense. 
So when we delved into the data, we suspected that respondents were satisficing. So in other words, they were telling us the responses they thought they needed to provide in order to qualify for the study. Um, so it turned out that had nothing to do with our screening criteria. So we ended up moving that question into the main survey and refielded the study. Um, and we, we found that, you know, it was no longer an issue. So the, the national brands were, you know, a lot higher than the, the regional brands and the data made sense again. So it, it was, it wasn't pleasant, obviously, because we had to refield the, stu the study, didn't make us look great in the client's eyes. But the way that we handled the refields, um, at the end of the day, the client got the data that, that he needed, and he, he is continuing to do business with us. That's amazing. Uh, in your extensive experience, what are some of the common challenges you've seen organizations face uh, when implementing research strategies? And how can you, how, what do you say how to overcome these challenges? I think a lot of clients and a lot of uh, potential clients, especially now, um, they have limited research budgets. The research is one of the first things to, to get cut. Uh, as a result of that, they're often trying to combine several different objectives into the same study. So instead of running only one or two all-encompassing surveys a year where they're, you know, they're throwing in everything with the kitchen, in the kitchen sink, um, it's better to conduct research more regularly throughout the year on specific topics. Uh, another thing that I've seen is speaking to the wrong audience. Um, that's another common mistake. So, for example, um, if you want to launch a survey about people's college experience, the survey should be targeted to people who have actually gone to college rather than the general population. Sure. Anything else? Uh, let's say that this would be a part of uh, more of a smaller scale organization or the challenges are common across our small scale businesses and bigger organizations. I, so I think it's, you know, I have friends in, in other companies that are experiencing the same thing. I think it's common across the industry. Uh, right. Naturally, every, every company handles it differently, but I think everyone is going through the same thing. So clients are looking to make their dollars go further and, you know, as a supplier, you know, my job and my colleague's job is to figure out, figure out efficiencies to make that happen. Uh, also, but is it really feasible to do the conduct the research throughout the year? Uh, despite of, I mean, knowing that it's going to be a challenge uh, if you do it extensively at one part of the year, uh, but also is it feasible uh, to constantly keep a check uh, on it throughout? No, I mean, it's definitely not the best strategy, not something I would recommend. I mean, depending on the topic, there there's often seasonality involved. So let's say, you know, you're, you're an ice cream brand, for example. Um, you don't want to interview people every December, right? It just doesn't make sense because people are not eating ice cream as much in December as they are in the summer. So um, it's definitely not something I would advise, but it, it is something that we, we come up against. Typically, it's not something like that. It's more of like a... Um, you know, a pulse check on the brand. So what are the perceptions of the brand? How is the brand performing? But again, if you're doing it only once a year, how much time does that give you in between waves to actually react and, and make a change? Right. Also, does the strategy vary from industry to industry? Uh, like you quoted the example for ice cream brand, that does make sense. I think it might. Um, most of, you know, I work primarily in consumer packaged goods and in healthcare. Um, 
uh, th- there's not typically season like in healthcare. There's not really any seasonality. Um, consumer packaged goods again, again, it depends on on the the uh, actual products. But I, I don't think there's. I haven't seen much of a change across industries, honestly. I was reading about your entire bio and uh, it meant, uh, it said that your experience also includes uh, training and mentoring teams, uh, which is my personal favorite genre to understand further. So how, how have you cultivated a culture of continuous learning and professional development among your team members? So unfortunately, we haven't had a chance to do it recently because we've been really busy. But in the past, we've done um, lunch and learns or we've had other types of informal um, knowledge sharing meetings. So basically, the team would gather and exchange stories um, and pain points with various clients, different methodologies, et cetera. Um, we would also discuss new ways to approach projects. Um, as you know, you know the, the industry is always evolving, so it's important to, to stay ahead of the curve. Um, as far as continuous learning, I think a lot of the staff has been, have been assigned a tract of LinkedIn uh, learning courses. Personally, I'm also a big fan of attending webinars, um, you know, tuning into podcasts, obviously. Um, I, I think with regard to ensuring a successful project, I think a lot of that hinges on open and frequent communication um, and also adhering to the key project milestones. So, you know, if, if the client agrees to provide a questionnaire on September 3rd, we need to get that questionnaire on September 3rd. Otherwise, everything gets backed up. Um, I also think that if something goes wrong in a project, I mean, obviously no one wants that to happen, but let's face it, it it happens. Um, When that does happen, it's best to notify the client immediately rather than trying to bury the issue, at least in my experience. Um, Being forthcoming has always been the the, the preferred response. Um, Like I mentioned, you know, mistakes do happen from time to time. Uh, and hopefully we learn from them so that they don't happen again and we, we don't make the same, you know, we don't end up in the same position in the future. I like the concept of continuous learning, especially training yourselves every day and also being responsible for the growth of the entire team as well. Uh, that says a lot about a group. So what would you say uh, are the most effective strategies that you found uh, in ensuring the flawless project execution? It, it's it's really just keep everything, everybody's on the same page. So making sure everybody knows what the timelines are, um, knowing what the objectives are, knowing what the project specs are. So if we're interviewing males, we're not writing a survey that includes females, so on and so forth. Um, I think agreeing on those specs up front is, is really paramount. So we don't have a lot of back and forth during the, the field period. That's a great insight. I would say for all team leaders, please take a note. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the market research landscape is continuously evolving. Uh, so what emerging trends or technologies do you believe uh, will have the most profound impact on how market research is conducted? And uh... um, it's a good question. Um, from what from what I've seen, I, I think natural language processing is the next big thing. So it's NLP as it's, as it's known. Um, it's basically when technology steps in and interprets open-ended survey responses. Um, for a while, there was a big push towards quantitative research because it was faster to, to conduct and it was easier to quantify. 
Um, but I think qualitative data offers more, um, more richness. So there's, it, it has more nuances, right. um, on qualitative research as a result of, of natural language processing. Um, I think whoever's able to get our, get ahead of the curve on that is going to be in very good shape. Um, right. also I think automation and templating has also become a lot more prevalent than when I first started in the industry. So it's almost, you know, that that's almost the cost of doing business. So if you're not, if you don't have any templates or automation, um, I, I would say you're probably behind right now. There are these also emerging technologies like emotion AI, predictive analysis, sentiment analysis. Uh, so how do you, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you play, how do you uh, feel that, you know, the kind of role that those technologies play on uh, the various research methodologies? So NLP is, is kind of, a, it's, it's a form of sentiment analysis. So I think I think these things are are related. It, it's basically taking um, you know responses, open-ended responses, and quantifying them somehow. You know, extrapolating what people mean and and, and being able to interpret the data in a meaningful way. Um, Closed-ended data is great. Again, I said it's it's easy to collect, it's quick, but it doesn't provide doesn't always provide you with the why. Right. So. Um, you know, I, I think understanding the why and being able to to quantify that is going to be extremely helpful going forward. That is definitely worth noting. Uh, so finally, uh, coming to the last and final question for the pod, uh, looking back at your journey and the insights that you've gained, what advice uh, would you give to the aspiring market research professionals, uh, particularly those aiming to lead and drive impactful research initiatives as you have done? Um, so MR is a very detail oriented industry and in my opinion, precision is, is everything. Um, so staying organized is really critical. Um, I also think that mastering questionnaire design is, is imperative since this is really the starting point for every market research study. So, um, if you have a lousy questionnaire, you're going to have lousy data. It's the, it's the garbage in garbage out philosophy. So, um, Personally, I spent a lot of time on honing my questionnaire development skills. Um, you know, it's something that I've been doing. It's something that I did from the start. It's something that I that I continue to do. Not something I'm doing on a daily basis anymore. But I feel like, you know, like riding a bicycle, you know, you can always do it, but you don't want to get rusty at it. So you always have to practice. Um, so that's that's one thing that I that I work on. Um, and I, I think even when projects have rush deadlines, and let's face it, they're all rushed now, right? Um, it's it's really important to take enough time to review the data and analysis and make sure you're comfortable with what you're submitting. Because once it's out the door, you can't take it back. So in my opinion, I'd rather spend an extra 30 minutes or an extra 60 minutes reviewing the data, reviewing the report before giving it to the client, even if the client's banging down my door. Because you know, I, I want to be sure that what I give is is one hundred percent correct. Um, lastly, I think it's important to be able to adapt to change within the industry, because you know we we've talked about the the evolution of the industry even within the past fifteen years, um, and maybe even within one's own company. So personally, when I started Toluna, um, there was a big push towards DIY. Um, we moved over to assisted DIY somewhere along the way. And now we also offer full service. So, um, you know, when I first started, 
I didn't think we were ever going to be, we would ever have a full service offering, but you know, now we do because the market, the market wants it. So we've reacted, we've reacted accordingly. That's, that's amazing. Dan. Thank you so much. Uh, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot, Dan. Once again, it was a pleasure uh, diving into your wealth of knowledge. Uh, and we really hope to have you back on our show. Um, Definitely. That would be awesome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and to all our listeners, if you're still watching or listening, uh, we would really appreciate your feedback. Please do like, comment, share it with your network as it will be very helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you.